In our first two episodes on The Tempest, we discussed the distinctive qualities of the play's setting and characters, the sense of dislocation and suspended, altered states, the parallels between apparently dissimilar characters, like the bad witch and the good magician, or the good master and the bad servant, and the ways we still struggle to comprehend Prospero's character, even at the play's conclusion. Some of the most crucial and unexpected perspectives on the play's characters are found in the following speeches. Laurie Maguire, Professor of English at the University of Oxford, guides our discussion. This first speech comes from Act 3. Caliban has pledged his service to Stefano and they have plotted to kill Prospero. Ariel overhears their plot and invisibly starts playing music. Stefano and Trinculo are frightened by the sound, wondering if it comes from a devil, but Caliban reassures them. Be not afeard. The isle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about my ears, and sometimes voices that if I then had waked after long sleep, will make me sleep again, and then in dreaming, the clouds methought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me, that when I waked, I cried to dream again. These are some particularly well-known lines of Shakespeare's work. In 2012, when London hosted the Summer Olympics, the opening ceremony was titled Isle of Wonder, inspired partly by The Tempest, and featured Shakespearean actor Kenneth Branagh reciting these lines for a world audience. The Olympic bell hung in the stadium was inscribed, Be not afeard, the isle is full of noises. Part of what makes this speech so memorable is the beauty of its lines. The soft, repeated S sounds of noises, sounds, sweet airs, instruments, create an internal harmony that reflects the music the lines describe. The speech also combines regular metrical rhythms with irregularities that lend variety and climactic shape to the lines. Shakespeare generally writes in iambic pentameter, following a pattern of unstressed, stressed syllables, da-dum, 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 da-dum. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments. In this play, and particularly here, Shakespeare also varies that rhythm, starting lines with an emphasis, sounds and sweet airs, or ending lines with unstressed syllables like noises, voices and dreaming that give a gentler feel to the line. These variations make it all the more powerful when Shakespeare returns to his regular iambic rhythm to build up momentum at dramatic points. For example in That when I waked I cried to dream again. The speech is also memorable because of the character who delivers it. Caliban speaks these lines to Stefano and Trinculo. Just before he met them, he was describing everything he hated about the island and its spirits, how they pinch and bite him, prick his feet, pitch him into swamps and fright him. But now, when they hear music played by one of the spirits, Caliban says, Be not afeard. 
In contrast to that grim earlier picture of an isle full of plagues and torments, he offers this vision of an isle full of sounds and sweet airs. And so we get a completely different picture of who Caliban can be and what his life experience can be like. Caliban is giving this speech of reassurance to the drunken Stefano and Trincolo. And this is Caliban's most lyrical speech. And it's a wonderful set piece about the music of the island. He says, the isle is full of noises. This is, this is Caliban's island. This is the island. We get a glimpse of the island from his point of view. It's full of noises, sounds, and sweet airs. And there's that beautiful pun on air, which of course means the air that you're breathing. You know, it's a wonderful, fragrant kind of tropical air, but also the musical air. They give delight and hurt not. And he talks about the, you know, what he hears when he's asleep and how he wants to stay asleep to hear these wonderful noises. And it shows riches ready to drop upon me. Now, I presume there that the riches he's talking about are metaphorical riches. Caliban might seem just as foolish as Stefano and Trinculo for the way he worships Stefano as a god and offers to kiss his foot. But this speech shows the differences between them. After Caliban gives this speech, Stefano's only reply is, This will prove a brave kingdom to me, where I shall have my music for nothing. He thinks only about getting something without having to pay for it, just as Trinculo's first reaction to Caliban was to consider how much money he could make by displaying him back in Europe. But the riches Caliban longs for here go beyond money. Caliban demonstrates capacities his foolish companions do not have, capacities for perception of beauty, for wonder, and a painful sense of longing. He cried to dream again. What we get here is a glimpse of Caliban, a nostalgic Caliban, a yearning Caliban, poetic Caliban, who's got an understanding of the island. Very important moment in Caliban in Caliban character. And the vocabulary in that speech is very like the vocabulary that we'll get again later in Prospero's Be Cheerful, Sir. We're talking about dreams. We're talking about sleep. We're talking about things coming to an end. We noted how characters on the island move in and out of enchantments, hypnosis and dreams. These lines are structured to give a similar sense of a strange in-between state. When Caliban says that he sometimes hears voices that, if I then had waked after long sleep, will make me sleep again, the words waked, sleep and sleep are set so close together that they almost seem to overlap. Likewise, the words, when I waked I cried to dream again, set waking and dreaming together. As soon as Caliban wakes, he sleeps, and then when he dreams, he wakes. How reliably can we tell when we are awake in the real world and when we are in a dream? That is the very question raised by Prospero in our next speech. This speech comes from Act 4. Prospero has given permission for Ferdinand and Miranda to marry. In celebration, he uses his magic to present a mask, a pageant involving music, dance and visual spectacles, here enacted by the spirits Prospero commands. 
They are dancing when the stage directions indicate that Prospero starts suddenly and speaks. He has remembered Caliban's plot to kill him and abruptly dismisses the spirits. Ferdinand is anxious and dismayed by Prospero's strange passion and Prospero then addresses him. Be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air. Into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made of, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. It's so helpful to look at the speech of Prospero right after the one of Caliban because they are so similar and could not be more different. So they they are both speeches of reassurance to their onstage companions. And so Prospero is trying to reassure Ferdinand, who's obviously been upset by, you know, this truncated mask and its abortive end. Oh, be cheerful, sir. Prospero is saying, don't worry. Our revels now are ended. These were just actors. These are actors. We're all spirits and are melted into air. And it's the comma after air that always gets me there. The spirits are melted into air. That's the end of the explanation. But then there's what in rhetorical terms is called, I think, epixegesis. That is an additional explanation into air, into thin air. And this is the the hinge. This is the point at which the speech starts to change its tone because melted into air is factual. Melted into thin air starts to be a realization of something that is not graspable, something that has gone. And then comparing the actors to the play as things that don't last. The baseless fabric of this vision, and then we're piling up the clauses now, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples. So we've got the, the constructions of early modernity. And then the great globe itself, which of course is so tempting to see as a reference to the actual theater rather than just the world. And of course, this is part of the tradition that sees Prospero and Shakespeare as an analogous and Shakespeare writing his farewell to the stage. The Globe was, of course, the name of Shakespeare's theater because of these references to the great globe and actors and their sense of disappearance, critics have often read this speech as Shakespeare's own farewell to the theatre. The Tempest was the last play Shakespeare wrote as a solo author, and within a few years of its composition, he retired from writing for the stage. Yea, 
all which it inherits. I mean, we are really now increasing, increasing towers, palaces, temples, the globe, and everything that will come after all these constructions will dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind, there will be no trace left. And for most critics, that starts to sound more than wistful, more than nostalgic, but really, well, despairing. I mean, it sounds peaceful, but the vision it offers, it's like the song at the beginning, full fathom five, thy father lies, he's gone. We are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep. We use that euphemism for death. In The Tempest, the analogy between sleep and death is not always peaceful. The character who draws that analogy most insistently is Antonio. While Alonso and Gonzalo sleep, Antonio says to Sebastian that if the sleeping king were that which now he's like, that's dead, then Sebastian could have Naples. And Antonio offers to lay the king to bed forever with his sword. This scene aligns sleep and death in a sinister way. Prospero's words, our little life is rounded with a sleep, could be read in a similar disquieting vein. After life, death is all that awaits. For most critics, this is in excess of what the speech needs. Because you know, if we go back to the beginning, what started off as a, having as its function the need to reassure Ferdinand has now become this metaphysical meditation on how there's nothing. It's not just the mask that's gone. Everything's going to go. What starts off as a speech of reassurance becomes a speech either of resignation, if you are being positive about, or a speech of nihilism that says, you know what, there's nothing. There is nothing. Theatre's nothing. We're nothing. And you can, you can play that as calm and philosophical, or you can play it as, wow, so where does that leave us? What's the point? Of course, many characters besides Antonio describe sleeping and dreaming in more positive ways. Enchanted both by Prospero's magic and by the sight of Miranda, Ferdinand says, My spirits, as in a dream, are all bound up. Caliban says that when he woke from sleep, he cried to dream again. So beautiful was the dream. If we are such stuff as dreams are made on, do dreams compose our life? Is that why life dissolves so readily? Or do dreams await us in the sleep that follows life? Can we tell whether this life is the real waking world or merely a dream from which we will one day wake? It's fitting that this play of unreal in-between states should ask us this question and never answer it. This speech comes from Act 5. Prospero has just been saying excitedly to Ariel that everything is going according to his plan. My charms crack not, my spirits obey. But then Ariel describes the distress of the imprisoned Italian nobles, saying, 
your charms so strongly work em that if you now beheld em, your affections would become tender. M mine would, sir, were I human. Prospero, moved, promises that he will treat his enemies with kindness rather than vengeance. He sends Ariel to release the nobles and, once alone, delivers this speech. You elves of hills, brooks, standing lakes and groves, and you that on the sands with printless foot do chase the ebbing Neptune and do fly him when he comes back, you demi-puppets, that by moonshine do the green, sour ringlets make, whereof the you not bites. And you, whose pastime is to make midnight mushrooms, that rejoice to hear the solemn curfew, by whose aid, weak masters though ye be, I have bedimmed the noontide sun. Called forth the mutinous winds and twixt the green sea and the azured vault set roaring war. To the dread rattling thunder have I given fire and rifted Jove's stout oak with his own bolt. The strong-based promontory have I made shake and by the spurs plucked up the pine and cedar. Graves at my command have waked their sleepers, oaked and let them forth by my so potent art. But this rough magic I hear abjure, and when I have required some heavenly music, which even now I do, to work mine end upon their senses that this airy charm is for, I'll break my staff, bury it, certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. So here is Prospero talking about his magic. It's his most detailed description of what his abilities have been. And it's a long time before we find out that what he's doing is abjuring that magic. But this rough magic I hear abjure. But it's, it's a long time down the speech before we get to that pivotal but. And he gives a very odd, heterogeneous description of fanciful and kind of improbable things that magic does. You that on the sands with printless foot do chase the ebbing Neptune. There are others who actually make mushrooms grow. They rejoice to hear the solemn curfew because the curfew bell rang at nine o'clock. So you were supposed to be inside by then. So, you know, these magic creatures can be out and about at midnight. So he's invoking all these aids that he's had. With their help, he has bedimmed the noontide sun. So he's caused eclipses. He's called forth the mutinous winds, and we've seen that at the beginning, twixt the green sea and the azure falls set roaring wars. So he's made the seas reach the heavens, which is a pretty good description of a tempest. And he's cloven, rifted Jove's stout oak. Then we get the spooky moment 
which is I can actually raise the dead. And that's the first moment where you start to think, hang on, what kind of magic is this? You know, causing a tempest has obviously been very helpful in this play. Why do you want to raise the dead? Is that what magic should be used for? Now, the audience, a large part of the audience, one imagines, would recognize with their humanist education that he is aligning himself here with classical antiquity's most famous example of black magic. In fact, Shakespeare actually quotes a famous piece of classical literature in this speech. An important school text in the Renaissance was the Latin poet Ovid's Metamorphoses, which was translated into English in 1567 by Arthur Golding. In Book 7, we find the figure of Medea, a witch, who reveals her power to call up dead men from their graves and calls to ye airs and winds, ye elves of hills, of brooks of woods alone, of standing lakes. Words that are echoed in Prospero's opening lines. He is is quoting Medea. Medea is a witch and Prospero's ye elves of hills, brooks, standing lakes and groves is pretty much a direct translation of Medea's lines. The only difference being that Prospero is actually renouncing his magic, whereas Medea is not. Shakespeare also draws parallels between his play and a more contemporary work, Dr Faustus, by one of the greatest early Elizabethan playwrights, Christopher Marlowe. This play depicts an ambitious scholar who pledges his soul to the devil in exchange for magical powers, powers not unlike Prospero's. The play's famous line, was this the face that launched a thousand ships, refers to Helen of Troy, whom Faustus has called up from the grave. So there's a lot been written about the influence of Marlowe's Dr Faustus on this play, Raise the Dead. That's what Faustus wanted to do. Prospero, of course, is the Italian form of Faustus. You know, happy, lucky. But we've seen and maybe this is Shakespeare's attempt to write a Faustus play, where Faustus starts with the legitimate humanist scholarly ambitions of just bettering himself. And then it leads him just over that threshold. It's an entirely laudable ambition to want to know more. And the circumstances that then tip you over the edge when that then becomes wanting to know too much or wanting to know the wrong kinds of things or going down the wrong kind of path. Has Prospero gone too far? Why is he giving up his magic? This rough magic I hear abjure. I'd love to see that this rough magic is just referring to the last bit, you know, raising the dead. But it's clear that he's talking about getting rid of the whole his magic staff, his magic cloak, his magic boots, and he's going back to being a normal human being. I'll break my staff. So he's going to snap his his magician's, his stick, and he's going to bury it very deep in the earth. And then deeper than ever any measuring instrument reached, he's going to drown his book very interesting. He's drowning his book. Faustus burns his book. Prospero drowns his book. The reason Prospero decides to give up all his magic may have to do with the context of this speech. 
It occurs immediately after he has changed his mind about pursuing vengeance and decided to pardon his enemies instead. Maybe he recognises that it is more difficult to show kindness and forbearance to others if he possesses absolute power over them. When he had total control over Ariel and Caliban, their slightest resistance would often provoke wrath and cruel threats against them. When he thinks Ariel is moody, he threatens to rend an oak and peg him in its knotty entrails. In this speech, he mentions his power to rift Jove's stout oak, and yet he gives up that power. His magic seems to tempt him towards anger and force, and so perhaps he wants to remove that temptation. In the epilogue, Prospero reminds us of what he has done in this speech, that he has given up his magic. He confesses that he lacks spirits to enforce his demands. He can only try to persuade the audience to grant his requests for mercy through the language of prayer. Language is one power he retains in this speech, even as he gives up all the rest. It's an incantatory speech that even as it's giving up magic, it is sounding magical. But maybe the real good magic is poetic language. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Kelly Hunter, MBE, for Caliban, Be Not Afeard. Anton Lesser, for Prospero, Be Cheerful, Sir, Our Revels Now Are Ended. Dame Harriet Walter, for Prospero, you elves of hills. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. Kim F. Hall, Things of Darkness, Economies of Race and Gender in Early Modern England. Anya Lumba and Martin Orkin, Post-Colonial Shakespeare's. Anya Lumba, Gender, Race, Resistance Drama. Barbara A. Moat, The Tempest, A Modern Perspective. Emma Smith, This is Shakespeare. Feature on Ovid's Metamorphosis from the British Library. And the following editions of The Tempest. The 2008 RSC Shakespeare, the 2011 Arden Shakespeare, and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can gain access to the full course by going to Himalaya.com slash Shakespeare. Thank you for listening. See you next time.